As always, it is my great joy and privilege to open up the Word of God to you. I have said many times that the preaching of the Word is the pinnacle of corporate worship. It's sad that many these days consider preaching to be an antiquated form of communication. They prefer instead multimedia presentations and drama and music that goes on and on, but that's not so biblically. In fact, I have been solemnly charged as a pastor in 2 Timothy 4 to preach the word. In fact, if we think about it in John 1, we read that in the beginning was the word. Does it say in the beginning was multimedia? In the beginning was drama? In the beginning was music? But in the beginning was the word. God revealed himself as the word and by the word and performs his works by the word. And so, therefore, as Paul has reminded us in 1 Corinthians 1:21, God is well pleased through at least what the world would call the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And so I come before you once again to preach to you the word of the living God as his spokesman. And this morning, I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, as we continue our verse by verse study of this wonderful gospel. And this morning I speak to you on the issue of the matter of spiritual authority, the matter of spiritual authority. Frankly, there would be no problems in the world today if we could all agree on what is the spiritual authority. And unfortunately, People do not understand that that authority is the word of God found in the Bible. Now, before we look at verses 23 through 32, in fact, before I even read them, I want to prepare your thinking a little bit so that you will understand the text a little bit better with respect to its practical relevance. Recently, I read a poll by the Barna Group, which is a Christian research Organization that shows that only 35% of Americans believe in absolute standards of morality. That is, the, that right and wrong do not change with time and circumstances. Only 35%. 32% of Americans say that morality depends on the situation and the circumstance. While 33% say they do not know if morality is absolute or relative. And certainly moral relativity is often reflected in statements such as, well, that might be true for you, but that's not true for me. Or who are you to judge? Sadly, the polls consistently show that the vast majority of Americans, somewhere in the neighborhood of 87 percent, say that they are Christian. They consider themselves to be Christian, whatever that means. Yet, Barna's poll showed that only 5% of Americans hold to a biblical worldview. Now, how can you possibly be a Christian and not have a biblical worldview? Folks, it is the matter of spiritual authority. Barna defines a biblical worldview as believing that, and I quote, Moral absolutes exist. The source of truth is the Bible. The Bible is accurate in all the principles it teaches. That salvation is by grace alone. Jesus lived a sinless life. Believers have a duty to witness. Satan is real and not just a symbol. God is the all-knowing, all-powerful maker of the universe who still rules that creation today. End quote. So in other words, you have the vast majority of Americans saying they're Christians, and yet they only 5% believe those things that I just read. Obviously, if you don't believe those things, you are not a Christian. Barna goes on to say, quote, our studies consistently show that churches base their sense of success on indicators such as attendance, congregant, congregant satisfaction, dollars raised and built out square footage. Yet, he goes on to say, none of these factors relates to the kind of radical shift in thinking and behavior that Jesus Christ died on the cross to facilitate. As long as we measure success, he says. On the basis of popularity and efficiency, we will continue to see a nation filled with people who can recite Bible stories, but fail to live according to Bible principles, end quote. Well, friends, this is no surprise to me and perhaps 
not a surprise to you. There has been a plague of isms on the church for many years. The gospel has been under siege for many years by liberalism for a number of generations, denying the very inspiration and authority of Scripture. And the church has been victimized by almost a generation now of mysticism, of charismaticism, Pentecostalism, where truth is determined by intuition and by experience. And certainly the great legacy of those movements movements is that they have jettisoned Bible doctrine altogether. And of course, mysticism has paved the way to the cultic word of faith movement where Jesus is reinvented to be kind of a cosmic genie waiting to be released by our words of faith to perform some personal miracle. And you see this in all of the faith healers and the prosperity teachers, all of those charlatans that present a gospel of self-fulfillment rather than a gospel of self-denial. And then, of course, you add to the mix the ism of revivalism, thanks to Charles Finney, primarily. You might even call it Finneyism, where you have showmen that fill pulpits calling themselves evangelists and they manipulate emotions and untold millions of people rush down aisles and repeat little prayers of easy believism and in most cases become professors of Christ, but not possessors. And then, of course, now you have pragmatism, which basically means you do whatever works. And so methods really replace the infallible record of Scripture. If you want to know what you need to do in the church, you just see what works. Forget what Scripture says. And so you have now have the wide gate gospel of the quasi Christian seeker sensitive movement that is sweeping the world like a firestorm where you have pastors that become entrepreneurs and end up sugarcoating the gospel message to minimize the offense of the cross and thus eviscerating the concepts of sin and repentance and the holiness of God and the wrath of God and so on. And as a result of all of this, churches are filled with tares, filled with people that claim to be Christian, again, whatever that means to them, but really do not know the living Savior. And so when you mix all this together, you have many, many people that are unbelievers filling churches, calling themselves Christians. And biblically, we know that unbelievers have no ability to discern the truths of the Bible, much less live them. And this mindset is even reflected in one of the popular books that has recently been written. And this one, interestingly enough, is by Barna. And um, I'm taking this quote out of Marketing the Church, a book that he has written. And here's what he says, quote, it is critical that we keep in mind a fundamental principle of Christian communication. Okay, well, let's hear what this is. Here it is. The audience, he says, not the message is sovereign. If our advertising is going to stop people in the midst of hectic schedules and cause them to stop and think about what we're saying, our message has to be adapted to the words of the or to the needs of the audience. When we produce advertising that is based upon the take it or leave it proposition rather than on a sensitivity and response to people's needs, people will invariably reject our message, end quote. Well, friends, I would submit to you that it's too bad that the prophets in the Old Testament didn't understand that it's the audience, not the message that is sovereign. I think of Jeremiah that preached 40 years without one convert. A prophet whose friends and countrymen plotted to kill him. They beat him. They put him, put him in stocks. He suffered with overwhelming rejection and depression to the point where he cursed the very day that he was born. He was finally thrown into a dungeon and he was starved and almost starved to death if it were not for the compassion of an Ethiopian Gentile that saved him. And later on, he was exiled to Egypt where he was stoned by his own people. It's too bad that Jesus didn't understand that it's the audience, not the message that is sovereign. 
because had he known that, he would have added some comedy to his message. He would have had a little slapstick in there. He would have certainly been a lot less confrontational and been willing to dialogue with opposing ideologies. My goodness, had he known that, he would have never had to have been crucified. Beloved, God in his word is sovereign, not the audience. And any attempt to sugarcoat the gospel, any attempt to mitigate the offense of the cross is utterly forbidden in Scripture. My calling as your pastor is to love you and to serve you and to teach you, not to please you. Even though I hope I do in many ways. But ultimately, pastors are to please the Lord. We are his messenger. God has made it in his made it clear in his word that. The audience does not to be solicited. I don't need to come to you to know what I need to tell you. The word of God has told me what I need to tell you. And quite frankly, God's word does give you a take it or leave it offer. But my, what he offers is grace and blessing untold. The result of all these isms, when you mix all of this chaos together, is what I would call or has produced what I would call a Frankenstein church that is, frankly, going to leave behind the whole seeker sensitive movement. It's called the emergent church. Maybe you've heard it called vintage Christianity or contemplative spirituality. It's a growing movement, a blend of Christianity and postmodernism. Postmodernism basically meaning that we can't know truth. There's no such thing as absolute truth and so on. And right now, this is nothing more than a loose coalition of churches that are frustrated with evangelicalism. And they're even frustrated with the seeker sensitive movement because they believe that they are far too fundamental. Hey, just think what they would say about those of us that are truly fundamental in our preaching and teaching of the word. A man by the name of Brian McLaren is the de facto leader of this movement. He's got a church called Cedar Ridge Community Church in Washington, D.C. And he has recently written a book entitled A New Kind of Christian. Uh, actually, it came out in... Uh, a few years ago, it's it was the winner of Christianity Today's 2002 Award of Merit, which should not surprise you if you know anything about that magazine. And in his book, he expressly argues that the Bible should not be considered infallible. Or authoritative, in other words, trustworthy or authoritative, he rejects, as you read it, the exclusivity and the centrality of Jesus Christ, and he tells us that it's more important to understand what Christians believe. Uh, I should say what Christians believe is far less important than what Christians do. As one critic aptly stated, quote, he prefers doubt and mystery over certainty and conviction. As you examine their presuppositions, you'll see that the essential doctrines, historic doctrines of Orthodox Christianity are all reduced to what he would call, quote, legal metaphors of faith. In other words, they're not precise rules of faith and practice, but metaphorical imagery that should give us some sense of the mystery of God, whatever that means. And frankly, the, these people are emerging from the shackles of precise doctrine. There's another church. Of this ilk by uh, by the name of Mars Hill Bible Church, which has about 10,000 people coming to it. Um, they meet in a shopping mall in Grand Rapids, Michigan. The pastors there are Rob and his wife, Kristen Bell, Wheaton College graduates. And Rob made this statement that I thought was was interesting to help me understand where they're coming from with respect to their Theology. He says that I quote, the Bible is still the center for us, but it's a kind, but it's a different kind of center. We want to embrace mystery, not conquer it. And his wife, Kristen, says, and I quote, I grew up thinking we figured out the Bible, that we knew what it meant. Now I have no idea what it means. 
And yet life is big again. Life like it used or like life used to be black and white. And now it's in color. End quote. Truly, my friends, for some people, ignorance is bliss. Rob goes on to say, quote, this is not just the same old message with new methods. We're discovering Christianity as an Eastern religion, as a way of life. Legal metaphors of faith don't deliver a way of life. End quote. Beloved, this is what happens when a society has no spiritual authority. When matters of faith and practice and morality and ethics, not to mention worship, are determined by the foolishness of sinful man versus the infinite wisdom of a holy God, a God who has revealed himself to us in his word. And this morning we witness a clash of spiritual authorities, man's authority versus God's authority. And before we read the text, let me remind you of the context here. Jesus has been hailed as king. He has entered into Jerusalem. And then with unprecedented and incontestable power, he has cleansed and taken control of the temple, blatantly attacking apostate Judaism and their authority, which was really nothing more than contrived rules and regulations and traditions of men who were leading the people for their own selfish interests. He was continuing now to heal and to teach. And it's still Wednesday morning now of the Passion Week, two days before his crucifixion. And now we come to the text in verse 23 of Matthew 21. And when he had come into the temple... The chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing, too, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source, from heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for they all hold John to be a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. He also said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered and said, I will, sir. And he did not go. And he came to the second and said the same thing. But he answered and said, I will not. Yet he afterward regretted and he went. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the latter. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you that the tax gatherers and harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax gatherers and harlots did believe him. And you seeing this did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. The matter of spiritual authority. And as we look at this text, I give you just a very simple outline. We will see three things. The resentment of spiritual authority, the source of spiritual authority, and the magnitude of spiritual authority. And as we examine this historical narrative, I pray that you will carefully examine your own heart, that the word of God will pierce all of our hearts this morning pierce through any hardened walls of of pride and deception and expose the matter of spiritual authority in our own lives. First of all, let's look at the resentment of spiritual authority. We see, first of all, that the chief priests who uh, would include here both Annas as well as Caiaphas, both of these men served together at this time. Along with the elders, the text tells us, the scribes and the theologians, the religious elite, all of these men now are confronting Jesus and they're seething with resentment. 
They are filled with rage because of what Jesus has done. And yet they see Jesus once again in the temple grounds there teaching. In fact, Luke's gospel tells us in Luke 19:48 that all the people were hanging upon his words. Yet, despite all of this, they come to him with with granite indifference to the truth of what he's saying, with utter disregard to the irrefutable purity of his life and and the blessings upon the beneficiaries of, of his miracles. They come to him with seizing resentment of his authority that they knew was from God. And they muster up enough courage to confront him. And in verse 23, at the end, he says, by, they say, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Now, certainly in their mind, they're thinking, no, wait a minute. We did not ordain you. We have not approved you, which, by the way, was the was customary among rabbis of the day so that they could keep the proper credentials within their circles. Jesus didn't have the proper credentials. In fact, they had accused him earlier of doing the things that he was doing by the power of Beelzebub. By by, he was an emissary of Satan. Talk about hypocrisy. And, of course, whenever the power and authority of Jesus is contested, the motive is never one of genuine teachability, but rather a determined commitment to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, as Romans 1 tells us, because they resent God's authority, because there is an antipathy towards the word of God. And with an antipathy towards the word of God, people are going to, in essence, say. Who put you in charge? Who gave you the authority to do what you are doing? Many times I hear this with the phrase, and if I've heard this once, I've heard it a thousand times. You probably have as well. Well, I, I just don't believe the Bible is true. All right. See, it comes back to the matter of spiritual authority, because obviously what I'm saying is coming from the word of God. And if you want to trump all of that, you just simply say, well, you know, hey, hang on a second. You know, I don't buy this word of God thing. I don't believe that it's true. And I've had on some opportunities to kind of go through what I'm about to share with you in in a very brief way. And I would offer this to you just for your thoughts. To say to a person who says, I don't believe that the Bible is true, to say, well, do you mean to tell me that even though more people have died for this book than all other books combined and all other faiths combined, you don't believe it? Do you mean to tell me that the Bible is filled with myths and legends, even though it speaks with stunning clarity about matters of science? Do you realize that 2,000 years before Christ, the Bible tells us that the earth rotates on an axis? That the Bible affirms the most basic laws of physics, the first and second laws of thermodynamics? Did you realize that? That it speaks about geology and astronomy, even the hydrological cycle? of evaporation from the seas and then condensation in the clouds and the rain and then the precipitation and how it all goes back into the ocean and starts over. Do you realize that the Bible talks about that? You're going to tell me that you don't believe that? You're going to tell me that you don't believe the Bible as the spiritual authority when in fact it is the only religious document in the history of the world with prophecy and that hundreds of those prophecies have irrefutably been fulfilled precisely. And you don't believe that? A book that was written by 40 authors over some 1,800 years, yet it speaks with irrefutable clarity with respect to history. A book with staggering literary complexity, and yet... There is an undeniable continuity of one central and dominating theme, and that is the person and the work, the glory and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were written about 450 years before Christ, 
We see that those scrolls verify the accuracy of the current manuscripts that we use for translation. And you don't believe it? That is full of myths and legends and errors. Of course, it's always fun to ask the critic. You know, I'm sure that you have studied the Bible for many years to be able to render such a dogmatic judgment. I'm sure that you're aware of all of these things that I've just mentioned. And of course, they look at you with a hollow look because the people that make those claims have no earthly idea what the Bible teaches. Even those that call themselves scholars. And the tragedy of all of this is wherever there is rebellion against God, there will be a resentment Of his authority revealed in his word. You see, friends, the issue is not a lack of information. It's not a lack of perspicuity. In other words, clarity. It's not that we can't read the scriptures and see and understand what it says. That it's some, you know, that it's got some Bible code or some of the silly stuff that you hear out there. But it's really an issue of the heart. And I've told you this before, but it bears repeating. The issue is one of ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, according to Romans 1.18, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Well, that's interesting. In other words, through reason. In other words, people can reason that God is, is, is a sovereign creator. All you have to do is look around at creation and see that. He is the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe. And also through conscience, something that God has built within every human being. People know that they are morally accountable to God. And so it's not like, well, boy, you know, I I just can't buy this and I just don't see it and I, I don't understand. No, it's that you don't want to. Jesus said in John 3, 19 and 20, and this is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. See, that's the issue of spiritual authority. Man resents divine authority because of the hardness of his heart. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 2.14, we read that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Meaning that unsaved people who are spiritually dead are utterly unable, as any corpse would be unable, to comprehend and discern spiritual truth apart from Regeneration, being born again, where the Spirit of God breathes life into them and suddenly they see the reality of their sin and the Savior. Well, this was the condition of the hard hearted religious leaders. Moreover, they were furious with Jesus because throughout his public ministry and now even in the temple, he had not consulted with them. He had not come to them and asked for permission and kind of gained their support. In fact, He utterly disregarded them and attacked them. Also, in order for rabbis to maintain their power over the people, they had to do something very interesting. And that is they had to disregard the precise meaning of the Old Testament scriptures. They had to reinterpret it to support their contrived and self-serving traditions. By the way, we see this today in many of the isms that I just described to you. Uh, They will use uh, aberrant Bible translations, uh, paraphrases and free translations, we call them, to support their ideas. Translations that have nothing to do with the truth of what a text says. And, of course, many churches today deny the very authority of Scripture altogether. This is very common in many liberal churches in America and around the world. In fact, recently in talking with a frustrated parishioner of just such a church, the, this individual told me that the pastor said to her, quote, the Bible may be your truth, but it's not mine. 
I'd hate to say what would happen to me if I told you that. And this individual asked the pastor in the course of conversation, can anyone come here to our church and find Jesus? And his answer was, of course not. That's not why we're here. This is a very personal thing. I'm paraphrasing the answer here. But his response was that that Jesus means different things to different people. That's why we need to be tolerant of other faiths. When people come here, they don't come here to find Jesus. They come here to find the love of God. They come here to find acceptance. Because spirituality is a journey that takes people on many paths. All of which will lead to God. Now, folks, these are the musings of an ear-tickling charlatan. You see, it is error that demands tolerance. Truth demands scrutiny. And that's why God has given teaching pastors in Ephesians 4 to equip the saints, the text says, until they attain to the unity, the doctrinal unity of the faith. And then with a precise understanding of Scripture, We'll have a precise understanding, the text says, of the Son of God. And as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But, now hear this, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Ephesians 4, 14. So... Resenting Jesus' power and resenting his popularity and his dogmatism, they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Now, there is no better way to infuriate a control freak than to ignore them. I've learned that. You've probably learned that. Certainly, this is what Jesus did throughout his ministry. And they were thoroughly offended by Jesus. And whenever you are being attacked by a malicious question, you know, questions like, you know, are you still beating your wife? You know, those types of things. Rather than answering the question, the better course of action is to ask your assailant a question that will expose his mischief. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Verses 24 and 25, Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing. In other words, he's not going to answer their question here. He's going to ask them a question. Which, if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? Well, friends, here Jesus has them cornered. You see, John the Baptist was considered the last of the Old Testament prophets, and the people respected him. The Jews respected him. They considered him to be a prophet. So Jesus now traps his assailant with this question, because at the end of verse 25 and 26, we can see that if on the one hand they answer Jesus in front of all the people who are watching, if they say, well, um, uh, John's ministry derived its authority from heaven, Well, that would mean that they would also have to accept, therefore, John's message. And what was his message? That Jesus was the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the Messiah. They came to take away the sin of the world. Well, there's no way they could say that. But on the other hand, if they answer that John's ministry was merely the musings of man and not of God, and that he had no divine authority, well, that could send the multitudes into a rage. And suddenly their popularity would plummet. And since these leaders were really nothing more than self-absorbed politicians desperate to stay in power, they didn't want to lose control here. And so naturally the best thing to answer is to say, and I'm sure rather sheepishly with a red face, we don't know. You see, they're still blinded to the truth. These Men, as Jesus, Jesus would call them, brood of vipers destined to hell, were truly on the horns of a dilemma. So again, rather than committing themselves, they just say, we do not know. Jesus responded in verse 27, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. 
By the way, he had told them repeatedly the source of his authority. It's not that they didn't know, it's that they resented it. And this leads us to my second point, and that is the source of authority. And this is implied in this text and clearly presented in others. You see, again, they knew his claims to be the son of God. Jesus had previously stated in Matthew 9, verse 2 through 6, that he had authority on earth to forgive sins. In John 1, 12, he said that he could grant those who believe in him to become the children of God. In John 5, 27, he said that his father gave him authority to execute judgment. Matthew even records that the multitudes in Matthew 9, 8 were filled with awe and glorified God who had given such authority to men. You see, over and over, Jesus stated that the source of his power and his authority was from his father. In John 5, 21, he said, just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. And just as the father has life in himself. Even so, he gave to the son also to have life in himself. And in John six thirty eight, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So they knew the source of his authority, but they persisted in their unbelief because they had their own agenda. Folks, what happens when we stubbornly refuse to humble ourselves to the truth of divine authority, to the word of God? When we refuse to acknowledge him, when we suppress the truth and unrighteousness, when we refuse, for example, to repent and to be saved by his grace. Well, the Bible is very clear what happens when that occurs. God, at that point, leaves you. He abandons you. A divine withdrawal. Romans 1 talks about it, where... People suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and eventually God just gives them over. Gives them over to the consequences of their iniquity. You don't want to hear me anymore, then I'll just back off and let you destroy yourself. And I've seen this hundreds of times, and so have you. In Genesis 6, we see an example of this in the days of Noah. The wicked refused to repent, and the Lord said in Genesis 6, 3, My spirit shall not strive with men forever. And it didn't. In Nehemiah 9, there's a great prayer of worship offered to God by a group of godly Levites. By the way, it initiated three hours of confession and worship. And they had a long list of Israel's sins that they confessed and recited to God uh, and also recited his works of redemption and in Nehemiah 9, verse 29, it says, You testified against them, referring to his people, that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments. It goes on to say, They shrugged their shoulders and stiffened their necks and would not hear. Yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit in your prophets Yet they would not listen. Therefore, now hear this, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. And indeed, history tells us that the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians dominated them for almost four centuries up to that time. Beloved, God will not be mocked. He will not be ignored. There comes a time where finally he gives you over. We see this all through the scripture in Hosea 4.17, the Lord did, did this very thing to unrepentant Ephraim, Israel. It says, Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. In Psalm 81, beginning in verse 11, we read, My people did not listen to my voice, God says, and Israel did not obey me, so I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. Friends, he will... Even turn and become your enemy. We see this in Isaiah 63:10, where he turned against Judah. Text says to become their enemy, and he fought against them. We see the same type of thing in Zechariah 7, beginning in verse 11. They refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing, and they made their hearts like flint. So that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit. 
through the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Friends, please hear me. The Holy Spirit of God, who is the revealer of truth, will only be ignored so many times. In Matthew 12, you will recall when we studied that text, Matthew 12, 31, Jesus said, sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the spirit shall not be forgiven. And certainly all all of us have blasphemed the father. We blasphemed the son before we were believers. We ignored them. But it's interesting that blasphemy against the spirit shall not be forgiven. Likewise, in Mark three. Verses 28 through 30, we read that truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Well, what does this mean? Well, friends, it's very simple. It's the spirit of God who is the revealer of divine truth. There is only one way to God, only one way to heaven. It's through Christ. There is only one truth. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the writer, the revealer of divine truth is the spirit of God. And if you blaspheme him, if you reject him, there's no other way. That's it. There's no other source of revelation. There's no other way to come to the truth. That's why in 1 Thessalonians 5.19 Paul says, do not quench the spirit. And then he goes on in the next verse and tells us how that can happen by despising prophetic utterances. In other words, by ignoring the proclamation of the word of God by preachers. That's how you quench the spirit. In Hebrews 10, there is a similar warning. In verse 26, the writer says, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And this is what was going on with with the Pharisees and the scribes with Jesus. They had heard over and over and over and seen with their own eyes what the truth was. But they would not receive it. And so he says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. In other words, there's there's no other provision. This is all that is left. And in Hebrews 10, 27, it says a certain And uh, well, all that is left is a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. It goes on to say in verse 29 of Hebrews 10, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he by which he referring to Christ was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. Because after rejecting all the truth that the Spirit of God gives to us, all that is left is the wrath of God. And that's why that text closes in verse 30, where God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. In verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And friends, the way you fall into the hands of a living God is by blaspheming the Holy Spirit, by rejecting his truth, rejecting the spiritual authority of God that is given to us by the revealer of divine truth, none other than the spirit of God. Friends, please hear this. You have only two choices. You either submit to the truth or you rebel against it. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. You are either for God or against him. You, you are either forgiven or you're not. You're either blessed or you're cursed. You're either saved or you're lost. You're either a child of God or a child of the devil, the Bible tells us. You're either heaven bound or hell bound. You're either, you are either a recipient of his grace, grace or you will be a recipient of his eternal wrath. And I plead with you, don't insult the spirit of grace by willfully ignoring the truth. For indeed, the Lord will judge his people. And it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So knowing the resentment of his authority and the source of which they knew to be from God, we finally see the magnitude of the authority. In other words, the enormous importance 
or the eternal weight or shall I say the significance of God's authority. And here Jesus communicates this crucial truth by presenting to them a brief parable, one that contrasts two different responses to the gospel. And here again, Jesus traps his adversaries, exposing their hypocrisy and even forcing them to pronounce condemnation on themselves. He gives the parable here in verses 28 through 31. What do you think? A man had two sons and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he and he answered and said, I will, sir. And he did not go. And he came to the second and said the same thing. But he answered and said, I will not. Yet he afterward regretted it and went. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they answered correctly and said the latter. You see, one son deliberately lied, knowing full well that he had no intention of being obedient to the will of the father. The other son answered first in rebellion, refusing to be obedient, but later felt conviction and remorse and repented and then obeyed. Well, which one did the will of the father? Obviously, the latter, which exposed the hypocrisy of the religious leaders who were saying, oh, we will do the will of the father. And yet they never do. And that's why the point of this is simply it is far worse to be a lying hypocrite with no intention of obeying the will of God, no intention of obeying the father. And by the way, in this context, obeying the father would be confessing Jesus as Savior, Savior and Lord. It's far worse to be that than to be like the first son who first rebelled. I mean, the second son who first rebels and then later repents. Now that his opponents had condemned themselves, Jesus says to them in verse 31, truly, I say to you that the tax gatherers and harlots will get into the kingdom before you. In other words, you religious phonies who claim to be the spiritual elite, the keepers and interpreters of the law, the keepers of the temple, doing the will of the Father, when in fact you are nothing more than self-righteous, self-absorbed, self-serving phonies. Those who you consider to be the most vile and wicked Wretched sinners of society, the very worst of the worst will get into the kingdom of God before you. Well, why is that the case? Well, quite simply, because those people are far more prone to see their sin and repent than those who have been, been deceived by their self-righteous religious works and think themselves deserving of divine favor because of their religious achievements. I've had the opportunity of witnessing to a number of prostitutes and drug addicts over the years in my counseling, um, criminals of various sorts. I've seen a number of them come to Christ. And friends, I'll tell you, I would much prefer to present the gospel to those people than I would some self-righteous churchgoer. Because the person that has deluded themselves into thinking that somehow they're godly when they're not are very, very difficult to deal with. They don't see the reality of their sin because they are deceived. And that's exactly the issue that Jesus is presenting here. And then Jesus elaborated on this by answering uh, the question that they feared to answer a little bit earlier. In verse 32, he says, for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax gatherers and harlots did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward as to believe him. In other words, you, you men, despite the radically transformed lives of those who repented, tax collectors, harlots, and no doubt some of them were even there with Jesus. Every kind of person, you've seen the transformation in these lives. Despite the undeniable proofs of, of my messiahship, of, of, of my miracles and my teaching, you're still going to refuse to repent? Oh, the tragedy of self-deception, my friends. And I plead to you to examine your heart because the kingdom of heaven is at stake. This is the magnitude of spiritual authority. 
You know, we have no way of separating the wheat from the tares. Uh, They must grow up in the church together, the Bible tells us, until the Lord of the harvest separates them. But I must warn all of you to listen to your conscience and to ask God to help you examine yourself, to see if you're in the faith. Ask yourself, do, do I really fear the Lord? Do I love Him more than all else? Does my public... Sunday morning conduct match my private conduct. Can I honestly say that I have a secret devotion to the lover of my soul, which gives irrefutable testimony to my conscience that I am his and he is mine? Friends, don't be like the hard hearted scribes and Pharisees, convinced of their own righteousness because of their works. Because salvation is by grace and by grace alone. And I close with this little story that I read once and I, I feel fits this. And it's, it wasn't a true story, but it won, it's one that gets the point across. It's like a child that is hanging from a windowsill in a third story apartment. And the apartment is on fire. And there is no possible way that that child can do anything to save himself. His works will not save him. And yet down below, his father cries out to his child, just let go and I will save you. I will rescue you. And the father pleads for the child to jump into his saving arms. And finally, the child begins to realize that no effort of his own would be of any benefit And so his only recourse is to let go and fall into the Father's arms. And for those of you within the sound of my voice that may not know Christ as Savior, that's what I plead with you to do. To let go of the windowsill of your sin. To let go of the windowsills of your works. Because, friend, none of those things will save you. The only thing that you can do is to let go of it all and trust in Christ as your Savior. And He will rescue you. Let's pray together. Father, may these truths find lodging in our heart and bear much fruit for your glory. Bring conviction to those who are lost and without you. Give them no rest until they find the Savior. And we pray that by your grace you will quicken their hearts, that they will see the truth and embrace it with all of their heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cbctn.org or call 615-746-0113.